Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Keith Sparrow. I am the pastoral assistant here at Redeemer, and I have the opportunity to preach to you this morning, and I'm really excited about it. Um, that being said, as David said earlier, and I appreciate this, and David and I didn't talk about this, but I'm talking about giving today. And that's kind of the, one of the areas you don't talk about very often in the church. In fact, in the history of Redeemer Church, since day one, I think maybe we've talked about it less than a handful of times. Less than five times we talked about giving in almost 10 years now. Phil, you could probably tell me if I was right or wrong on that. But it's something we don't talk about often. And I'm talking about giving, so I'm talking about money. And we, we're very much a culture that doesn't like to be told what to do with our money or our giving. But today we're going to look at how the gospel is visible in our giving. Now, I know this can be uncomfortable to talk about. We have cultural issues with talking about money. We have religious issues with talking about money. We have different views of how we treat our finances and our money. Um, I'm going to talk about giving today. Oftentimes when you talk about the word, we use different words for giving. People use the word tithing. It's an Old Testament word. Generally, when you talk to Christians, it means approximately 10% of your money you give to the church, the rest is your own. Um, that's a great goal to set, but I, I'm going to argue throughout the text today that that's not what Jesus has for us. It's not just that we give a tithe, it's that we give generously, we give extravagantly for the cause of the kingdom. Now that being said, it's my hope today that I can give a framework from the Bible of how we should think about giving that is both biblical and Christ-centered. Now, there's a lot of misunderstandings about giving, and if I don't talk about a few of these real early on, people are going to check out. Whatever, I'm done. This is just your opinion. So I want to make a couple things real clear. Giving has nothing to do with saving us. Salvation is not by how much we give to the church. Salvation is by the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's what saves us, not our giving. Our giving is a response to salvation not a cause of salvation. Giving doesn't save others. Another one, giving is not a Christian duty that's supposed to be joyless. God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is an act of worship. Next, giving is purposeful. It's for the mission of the church. We give because we believe in the mission. Next, giving is not just financial. We give of our finances, but we give of our lives, our time, our energy, our homes. I want to say this as well. We are called to be wise in our giving. Yes, we are called to give extravagantly. I love that word. But we're not called to give everything we have and sell our homes and live a life of poverty. We're called to be wise, to take care of our families, to invest well of our energies so that we can give more and more extravagantly, more and more passionately for the cause of the gospel and for the good of others. Now, the final point, and then I'm done making these points, is that this sermon is not about guilt. If I make you feel guilty, I'm sorry. That's not the goal here. This sermon, for me, of all people, especially me, has helped me examine my heart, and I hope I can help you examine your hearts and see where we are spiritually when it comes to giving. And the sermon is to challenge us to live out our faith in all aspects of our lives, including our giving. 
what we're going to find today is that Christian giving is driven by a love for God and others that generously pours out not only our money, but our time, our lives, and our all into others for the sake of them knowing and loving Jesus. Now, that's long-winded. I'm going to say it one more time, and that's just our three points, and then break that down into. So Christian giving is driven by a love for God and others that, is generously, that generally pours out not only our money, but our time, our lives, and our all into others for the sake of them knowing and loving Jesus. So our first point we're going to look at here in Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21, and verse 24, it's uh, page number 811 in the Black Pew Bibles, is that Christian giving is fueled by a love for God and others. G- As I was preparing for this sermon last week, I started doing just a quick reference of the New Testament and giving. And especially in the book of Matthew, Jesus hits on giving a lot. I was amazed by the number of times he speaks about money in the New Testament, just in the book of Matthew. And in uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 21 and 24, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, this great section of early teaching that we have. And he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Skipping down to 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus in this text challenges his hearers to store up their treasures in heaven, to focus on heavenly things rather than earthly things. Now I want you to think for a minute about that one thing. Perhaps you have kids and you know that they've been telling you, like my nephew has for the past three or four months, I really, 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 really want this for Christmas. Or my niece, I really want this for Christmas. If I have this, I'll be happy. How many of you have kids that just have to have this thing to be happy? Once they have it, their life is complete. Let's be honest, this isn't just kids. How many of us say, hey, as soon as I have the newest, for me, the newest computer, I'll be happy, I'll be great. Or we say the newest car or the newest whatever it would be. We say, once I have this, everything will be wonderful and great. Reality sets in, doesn't it? None of these things, you buy the toys for the kids, they play with it for an hour, then they play with the box for a week, and then it gets broken, they throw it away. You get it as an adult, you get the brand new computer, you're like, yay, and then it dies. Within a year, something else comes out, and it's old, and it's no longer valuable. Rust, moths, age, wear and tear, these things break. The things we thought would satisfy us They get old and broken down. Or in my case, you get a pile of stuff from your high school years, which you may not have treasured as much as you should, and you put it in the best place to keep things, your basement, and then your basement floods and destroys a bunch of it. The things that we may treasure don't last if they're on this earth. These things are meant to point us to a greater treasure in heaven. Jesus 
challenges his hearers here, the readers of this text, to set their hearts on the things of God that are eternal. Not on the things of this earth. The things of this earth, as I said, they fade away, they get destroyed, they get damaged, they get old. He then goes further than this. He sets an ultimatum before them in verse 24. You cannot serve both God and money. If money is first, God will always be second. If God is first, money will also be second. But God and money, they both cannot be of equal value, equal priorities. Because as Jesus says, where you treasure, that's where your heart will be. So this is something that provokes a lot of heart examination in my heart and hopefully in yours as well. Let me ask a question. And I think David already kind of stole my thunder on some of this. You know, do we ask, how much should I give? You know, how much can I give to the church today that won't really interfere with my daily three times a day Starbucks habit or my uh, going out for dinner four times a week? You know, how, how much should I give that won't impact me? Or how much can I give? What questions do we ask? I would challenge us to ask how much we can give. What can we give up that we're pursuing on this earth? What's on our Amazon wish list that we really don't need to buy or have, but instead that we can take that money and invest it in things that matter in eternity? Because let's face it, money is deceitful. And we're prone to thinking we can never have enough. And I was just reading this week about how no matter how much you get paid, your spending will just naturally increase to fill that void without even trying if we're not intentional. Now, I'm talking about money. This is making people uncomfortable. And I'm talking about how, mu- how we should spend our- and invest in the things of heaven. I, I don't think I'm, I-, I probably sound pretty radical. Hey guys, invest in the things of heaven, not the things of this earth. But what does Jesus say? Real quick, in Matthew chapter 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy that field. Jesus shows here how the kingdom of heaven, having the kingdom, is worth selling all in order to obtain it. We're quick. We're Baptists. We're Reformed. We are theologically astute, and we are quick to say, well, we're not saved by selling our stuff, Jesus. We're not saved by selling our stuff. We're saved by the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf, and that's true. But why are we so defensive when it come to this? Because I'll be honest, this was my first response, was I read this text, and I go, well, we're not saved by selling stuff. And then I kind of got, the, the Holy Spirit kind of goes, slow down. Slow down and think about this. Jesus shows here how much the kingdom of heaven is worth, that it's worth giving up all to obtain. We're quick to reason away what Jesus is saying here because we love our stuff. But being a part of the kingdom of God, being a part of what God is doing in Jesus is worth far and above more 
that everything we could give up and sell. That we, all that we could sell, if we had everything we had in our lives and we sold it, all the money and all the worth and all the value, we sold it all, it wouldn't be enough to buy our way into heaven. Our sins required the death of God. The God-man, Jesus Christ, died on our behalf to reconcile us to God. It took his blood. Our money would never be enough. So when you read this text, Matthew 13, 44, just take a minute and realize that all of our, the heaven is worth far and above more than anything we'll ever have, all the treasures in our life. You know, we live in a material world. We live in a materialistic society. We, we have Amazon.com as our homepage a lot of the time. We have a tab open. We're, we're a lot, we have a lot of things we like, stuff, toys, books, good stuff too. You know, hey, I'm, I, I like to shop through Amazon Smiles so the IMB gets part of my purchase. You know, there's good things we can buy. And then I justify buying things because I'm like, hey, IMB gets some so I can buy more. We are people who are infatuated with things. And we think too little of heaven and too much of money. And I have a plaque at home that I haven't hung up yet because Claudia and I are debating where to put it. Um, but one of my very favorite Christian poets, who John likes to refer to as quite the stud, C.T. Stud, um, has said in the has a poem that has always been so helpful to me. The poem is, Only One Life Will Soon Be Passed. And the refrain throughout this poem, and it's a couple pages long, but as he walks through the life of a person, this common refrain repeated again and again and again is, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So when I think about giving, when I think about finances, and I encourage you all just to meditate on that. Um, it's been so helpful to me to think about how I use my money and time and energy. Things that we do that are entertainment, that are fun, that are enjoyable, vacations we take, these things aren't bad. But we need to have a focus on eternal things as we do them. So giving generously when we give of our money, we show that God is greater than our money. When we give extravagantly to the causes that God has called us to give to in, in the gospel, me and man note, in caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan, we show that he is more valuable than our money. Oftentimes we, we read 1 Peter 3.15 that says, you know, always have a reason for the hope that is in you. And the hope there is that you can tell others about it. So I want to challenge you that if you want to have the opportunity for people to say, why is your life different? Then spend your money on the things of God. Don't pursue the, the rat race, the human rat race of always keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the Smiths, keeping up with the Sparrows, keep up with whoever. You know, we can be so passionate about, and Claudia and I went car shopping yesterday. So I'll be honest, we need a new car. Our mind's too small for Lyle. His legs are digging into the back seat already. And uh, it's so easy to get wrapped up in those things and go, wow, I really see this really nice car. And hey, we could afford it and buy a lot and spend a lot. But then we're challenged. It's like, okay, how does this bless others? How does this invest in what is eternal rather than 
buying a brand new car because it's there and then losing eight grand when it pull it off the lot. We're so quick, I'm so quick to want bigger and better stuff. But when we're intentional with our money and time to show that our investment is in things that are eternal, our investment is in the gospel, our investment is in the church, our investment is in pouring our resources and time into loving others and taking them out to lunch and talking to them about Jesus. When we do that, we show that our treasure and our hope is not in our finances, but it's in him. And that people will notice. When people notice that we're not passionate, we're not living for getting more stuff and bigger houses and nicer cars, but we're living to pour out our wealth into others, there will be, people will question why. What is driving you to this? What is driving you to live differently? So if you want to be asked, why is there hope within you? Live differently. Live for Christ. Now, I said Christian giving is fueled by, is driven by a love for God and others. And I talked a lot about giving to missions and giving to the church. The New Testament also speaks of love for others. The Apostle Paul writes, we're not going to flip to it, but you're welcome to if you'd like, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, he writes to the Corinthians to encourage them regarding a collection that he's taking up from the churches in Asia, minor, to support their Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And he writes this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now this, this giving that Paul was putting together was not primarily like, hey, we're giving to send missionaries. This was our brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem are suffering, and we need to help them. So Christian giving is fueled by love for God and a love for others. And this love for others was decided by each person, not under compulsion, not forced, but out of cheerfulness, out of generosity and love. They helped with each other's needs. So Christian giving is fueled by love for God and others, first. But second, it, Christian giving generously pours out not only our money, but our time, our lives, and our all unto others. Now, I spoke about money first because money, you know, our time goes to work to make us money. Our stuff is bought with money. Money is a big deal. Jesus talks about money a lot. And money is one of the primary ways we give. Not only that, but our money is a really easy way to examine our heart. Why do I say this? Because if you bank online, a lot of your different banks will have financial management software. This is really scary if you've never done it before. If you're with Busey, they used to have something called Finance Works. And you'd hit OK, you'd add your credit card, and it would compile all of your expenses for you. And then what it would do for you is it would categorize those expenses and tell you, here's where you're spending your money. And that's an eye-opener. That's a real eye-opener when you're like, I spent how much on food? I spent how much on entertainment? I spent how much on this other thing? I give how much to the church? It gives you visual graphics that give you a lot of information about how you give. But if you look at your checkbook and add things up, 
you'll see very quickly what's most important to you. Now, obviously, we have to pay for our house, our car, our insurance. These are things we have to pay for. But what do we do with our money that we don't have set aside for expenses? You know, I want to encourage all of us to be generous in loving others with our finances, but money's not the beginning of the end of Christian giving. Um, now, the picture we have in the book of Acts in chapter 2 of the early church, we see the believers selling their possessions, giving the money to the apostles. We see them doing this and then sharing it across the church with those who have need. But we also see the early church gathering together in one another's homes, uh, sharing food together, caring for one another, having, showing hospitality, having all things in common. So Christian giving is money, but it's a lot more. Jesus gave the church the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm going to approach, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today, is, is the Great Commission. And we always talk about Great Commission in mission terms, like we are to go out and go, but I really want to spend a few minutes and look at how this thing calls us to live our life. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus, who is now risen from the dead, is giving his last words we have recorded in Matthew to the disciples. His command to them. And he says, resurrected Lord that they've worshipped. He says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The commandment of Jesus here requires more of us than money. It requires us to go. It requires us to speak, to invest in others, not just to give finances, but to give of our time and our lives to invite them into our home, to invite them to our meals, to invite them into our families. The Great Commission requires believers in Jesus to invest in and disciple others, to teach them, to baptize them, and to help them obey all that he has commanded them, including the Great Commission as well. See, discipleship is the term we use for growth in the Christian faith. And discipleship starts... Before people are Christians, we engage them, we talk to them, we, we share Jesus with them as we see them start to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. And we see them fall in love with Jesus. That's discipleship as well. But then we help them to learn what Jesus has commanded them and how to obey it and how to walk with him. Discipleship is not a one-and-done process. We talk about evangelism, sometimes we're like, hey, shared the gospel four times this month, and I'm excited about it, and that's great, but discipleship is more than sharing the gospel. It's investing in souls. It's spending time with them, helping them know and love Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the will of God, that they may know him and walk with him. And discipleship is a church thing. It's not a paid minister thing. It's not an elder thing. It's not a deacon thing. We're all disciples, and we're all being discipled. And we're called to do this. We're called to be disciple makers 
even and especially if we don't have all the answers. When I first came to Jesus here um, 19 years ago now, coming up on Christmas, I didn't have all the answers. And I'm a, I'm a data guy. I love to have all the information. But I realized as I kept reading and studying that you're never going to have all the answers. No one has all the answers other than God. And you don't need all the answers in order to disciple others. See, we're called to be disciples of Jesus and to make other disciples, regardless if we're brand new Christians or we're very mature Christians, regardless if we're staff or, or we're just members of the church, regardless if we're in positions of authority as community group leaders or just members or visitors. If our hope is in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, we're called to disciple one another. How does this work out? Well, a Christian of a few years can invest in a brand new Christian, can invest in those who don't know Christ yet. They can share with them, they can read the Bible with them, they can share with them the truths about Jesus, who he was, who he is, what he accomplished, what the cross means. Now, those who are older in the faith, established in the faith, who've walked with Jesus for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, they can invest in a brand new believer and help them understand the truth of the gospel. But discipleship is not a one-way road because that brand new believer, though they may know one thousandth of this believer of 50 years, they may have a passion and a love and a joy for Jesus that challenges that more mature believer to love and appreciate and for the joy of their salvation to be restored, as David prays. So Christians, we disciple one another. In the church, in our community groups, in our LTGs, we help one another grow into Christ. But this takes time. This takes intentionality. This takes, it's, it's easy to write a check. It's even easy to be sacrificial and say, hey, I'm going to cut out all eating out. I'm going to cut out all my Starbucks. And I'm going to write this big old honking check and say, I gave 30% of my income to the church for the, or, or to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I gave all this. And I, I'm excited about Jesus. But if we're not willing to give up our time and our energy and, and spend time with those who don't know him, we're not getting it just yet. We're doing a good thing. But the Great Commission calls us not only to give of our money, but to go and have those conversations with our coworkers, with our friends, with our family members, with our neighbors, with random people we talk to on the street, and share with them the good news of Jesus. So, Christian giving is driven by love for God and others that generously pours out not only our money, but our time, our lives, and our all into others. And the last point tonight is for the sake of them knowing and loving Jesus. So let's look back at the Great Commission real quick. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So we're talking about giving today. And this is really the purpose statement for Christian giving. Giving can take innumerable forms. Our culture is becoming very, very good at giving. You can go to Walgreens and you can buy a red nose and you can give to the Heart Association, the Diabetes Association, the Lung Association, St. Jude, March of Dimes. There are 10,000, 100,000 good foundations and charities. There is Doctors Without Borders. There is the American Red Cross. There are so many that I can't name them all that do great work. And I'm thankful for them. I am thankful for those people who go and pour out their life to do kindness to others. But Christian giving, Christian giving, biblical giving is driven by a different motivation, though it may take similar forms. Christian giving is driven by the goal of others knowing and loving Jesus. This is the foundation for which Christians give to the church. They give to Lottie Moon. They give to the Southern Baptist Convention so that people may know Jesus. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention has teams of disaster relief volunteers who come out from the churches that are trained to go to help people after hurricanes and earthquakes that go and provide food and work with the Red Cross and work with other agencies so that people can have food and can be taken care of and can have trees removed from their buildings and their homes. Southern Baptists do this. They work alongside state, local, national agencies that do these things. But the Southern Baptist disaster relief people who go don't just go to cut down trees. They go to share the good news of Jesus with others. The method, looks the, 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 the way they do it is very similar. They go and they make food. And they go and they cut down trees, just like so many other agencies do. But they go to do that to point others to the greater love that God has for them in Jesus. Christian giving is driven, as I said, by the goal of others knowing and loving Jesus. We give to our church that the church may equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We give to the church, we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, as we talked about, so that missionaries be sent, may be sent across the world to unreached people groups that they may have the, God, the Bible in their own language, that they may hear about Jesus, that churches may be raised up, that the gospel may be made known. The reality is, if we believe that Jesus is the only way to God, and Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life, no man may come into the Father but by me. So if he's the only way, we want to make sure that gospel message is being sent to those who have not heard. So we give. Now, Christian mission ministries, both overseas and in the U.S., include doctors. They include feeding the poor. They include, for years, establishing hospitals Throughout the U.S., we have so many Methodist and Baptist and Catholic hospitals because the church has seen the need for health care for the people and has raised up the resources and finances to take care of them. But whether it's the Catholic hospital or the Baptist or the Methodist, 
The purpose of that was to point them to Jesus in different ways, with different motivations, and different theological understandings. The purpose was not just to care for their bodies, but to care for their souls. So at the core, I love, and I encourage you all to be thankful for the numerous non-for-profit agencies that do a great deal of work for those who are in, you know, post-hurricane environments, post, I mean, they're going to be out in California helping these people after the wildfires wiped out dozens, hundreds and thousands of homes and hundreds of people are missing or dead. They're going to be out there caring for those people, helping them get their home back in order, feeding them, loving them and pointing them to Jesus. Um, The Christian ones will. The other agencies are going to help them in the same way. But the core difference is that the proclamation of the gospel is at the core of Christian giving and serving. This is why we send missionaries, because we believe people need to know the gospel in order to be saved. This is why we give to the church. This is why we give to different collections. We believe that the gospel, the world needs the gospel. We believe that the gospel will make a greater difference for peace between peoples if they're united in Christ than all the, all the diplomats in the world. We believe the gospel will make a greater difference in the homes of those who believe than, than sending all the, 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 the care we can. Though we send the finances and we send the food as well. We recognize that we need, the world needs the hope that we have in Jesus and we want others to know him. So as I said, Christian giving is driven by a love for God and others that generously pours out not only money, but time, our lives, and our all unto others for the sake of them knowing and loving Jesus. So how do we give? Kind of application time, let's bring it home. How do we give? I'm not gonna set a number for anybody. That's not my goal. That's not all the Bible to have a number. I would say, encourage you though, think of how you can give generously. Think about how you can pour out your finances, yes, but also your time and your life into those who do not know Jesus and point them to him. I would encourage each of us to look as the source of our giving the gospel. So in closing, as I'm finishing up here, The sermon series has been called The Gospel Made Visible. So the question has to be answered. How is the gospel made visible in our giving? And the answer in this is we have to understand the gospel to see it. God created the world and everything in it. He created mankind to live in harmony with him, in perfect relationship with him. Mankind sinned. They rebelled against God. They ate the fruit they were commanded not to eat, and they were relationally severed from God, dead in their trespasses and sins. But that was not the end of God's plan. God chose a people for himself, the people of Israel, brought them into the, out of Egypt and into the promised land, established a kingdom there, and promised from the line of David to bring forth a king, a Messiah. Over time, God brought the the nation of Israel to predominance 
and brought them down. They were exiled and brought back. And at the end of Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, there's this sense of waiting. And then God is silent for 400 years. Jesus then comes in to the earth. He's born of a virgin. He lives a perfect, sinless life we could not live. He teaches and proclaims the teachings we have in the New Testament. He is betrayed, tried, and executed by the Roman authorities. He suffered and died on the cross not only because the Romans and the Jews wanted to silence him, but we learn in the scriptures he died upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and to atone, to take the wrath of God for us. And if the story ended there, it would not be good news. But Jesus, after three days, rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He, God raised him back up from life. And in Jesus' death on the cross, we are offered the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Jesus rose again. He ascended into heaven and promised to come again. He sent out his disciples, as we read in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples, to tell of his good news so that the people may be restored to God from their rebellion. We see that those who trust in Jesus Christ, though they are the beggar who come to God with nothing to offer but sin and wickedness, God says, if they hope in Jesus, he says, all the wealth of spiritual blessings in God, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is attributed to you in Jesus. God takes these people who, know, who have nothing and pours out a wealth that we can barely begin to imagine in Christ. As Ephesians 1.3 says, we're given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So when we give generously of the wealth that God has given us, when we are intentional to give to others, yes, we show that our treasure is not on earth but in heaven. But as we pour out our wealth generously to others, not so that we get something from them, but to show them love, we are making the gospel visible. We are making, showing a picture of that love. And we offer an opportunity for people to know him as well. So I'm going to end with the words of Jesus today. Let us strive, church, to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let us pray. Father, you are a God who has abundantly blessed us in Jesus. You didn't just give us wealth or blessing, but Jesus, you died in our place that we may know you. Lord, you set us this example of abundant giving. Father, I pray that as we walk through our lives, we would see the things we've been given not as 
ultimate. But we'd see the, the possessions, the money, the, the homes, the, the cars as resources that we have that we can use to bless. Lord, I thank you for the many ways I've seen our church do this, the faithfulness they've shown, and pray that you would just help us to continue to grow in love for one another and love for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.